John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Welcome to War of the Rebellion, Stories of the Civil War. I'm your host, Leon, and this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross. Antietam to Appomattox, the Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania. 1861-1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment. Narrated by the Rank and File. And next up, a Country Boy in the Army by Color Corporal Arch N. Ewer, Company C. In August 1862, the writer left his brother's farm in New Texas, Allegheny County, to enlist, being then in his 16th year. He attended the war mass meeting held in West Common, Allegheny City and heard the great orators from the dozen or more stands described, the imperiled Union. And before leaving the meeting, the writer actually enlisted, at a recruiting stand, in the common was a sign announcing that to be the headquarters of the, quote, Iron City Park Engineers, unquote. After a few minutes' conversation with Captain John H. Kane, in charge, the writer enrolled his name, and the company was organized as Company C, 155th Pennsylvania Volunteers, under Colonel E.J. Allen. The writer underwent the strenuous life for a few days at Camp Howe, the recruiting station in Pittsburgh, and recalls the still more strenuous first march of three miles of the heavily burdened recruits from the camp to the railroad station in Pittsburgh. Captain Lee Anschutz became captain of the company, Captain Kane being promoted to major. The impression of the first sight of a battlefield, being scenes at Antietam, will never be effaced. After the battle, the writer took a stroll over the field and into the town of Sharpsburg, and the sights were enough to shock the stoutest heart. The enemy, in retreating, had left their dead and wounded behind, and the day following General Lee sent a flag of truce asking General McClellan to allow him to send Confederate surgeons to attend upon their wounded. As the number of the latter ran into several thousands, and the Union general had no surgeons to spare from the hospitals crowded with Union wounded, the request of General Lee, on the grounds of humanity, was granted. Beside the trenches and ditches into which the dead were removed for burial, there was a ravine along the roadside known as Bloody Lane, in which a thousand Confederate bodies were exposed just as they had been killed in battle. In the town of Sharpsburg, dead Confederates killed in yards and on doorsteps, lay untouched. As the 155th Regiment and Humphrey's Division passed through to the Potomac at Shepherdstown Ford, the town of Sharpsburg, being between the contending armies, suffered severely. All the inhabitants had fled. The sights of hundreds of Confederate wounded, mere boys, whom the regiment also passed on the roadside where the surgeons had placed them, after amputation of legs and arms, to secure the benefit of the sun's warmth, was also sad. 
but still more sad were the number of bodies at the same field hospital of the dead, who had expired under operation awaiting burial. This was the writer's introduction to war, but two weeks after the regiment had left Pittsburgh. The death of Captain Lee Anschutz, commanding the writer's company, in leading the desperate charge on Mary's Heights, Fredericksburg, with the awful carnage of that great battle under Burnside, brought home to all of the regiment the horrors of war, in the sight and scenes of their own dead and wounded companions. Colonel Allen's conspicuous bravery was an inspiration to his men on that occasion. Captain Anschutz had endeared himself to all of the company by his manly courage and affectionate interest in his men. After the charge of the 18th of June, Colonel Pearson appointed the writer a color corporal, and in that capacity he served until the surrender at Appomattox. At the Battle of Peebles Farm, while serving with the colors, the writer was wounded on the left side, fortunately, however, not requiring him to report to the hospital. Color Corporal Tom McCush of Company I was killed at the Battle of Five Forks. He was a popular favorite in the regiment. The writer recalls a remarkable conversation he had with Corporal McCush the morning of the battle. When it was apparent that the war was about ending, as Petersburg had fallen and the enemy was in retreat, the corporal declared that there would still be severe fighting and that many more lives would be lost, adding that he believed his own would be among the number. The writer discouraged the presentment thus expressed, but among the killed in action of that day was the writer's fellow color corporal, Thomas McCush, in his 19th year. Campaigning with Company A by Private Nathan N. Fullerton The writer was with the 155th Regiment from its start in Pittsburgh to its discharge and muster out in Pittsburgh. There are but a few survivors having this record. The great battles of Antietam, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, Wilderness, Laurel Hill, Cold Harbor, Petersburg, and Five Forks, ending with the glorious surrender, will no doubt occupy chapters of the regimental history, so that references to the same will be unnecessary. At the Battle of Laurel Hill, following the Wilderness, Company A lost its brave commander, Captain Charles C. Johnston, who was killed in the thickest of the fight. He was one of three brothers serving in the company. Lieutenant Edward P. Johnston, who lost his arm in the Battle of June 18th, and James P. Johnston, who was discharged for disabilities contracted in the service. Sergeant William Justice and Corporal Franklin Gilmore were also severely wounded at Laurel Hill. One, becoming reminiscent of the campaigns and sieges and incidents of the war, scarcely knows where to draw the line, there being so many incidents likely to interest comrades, but space forbids to refer in detail to the events. One incident of more than ordinary interest occurs to the writer as appropriate. It happened the day and night before the Battle of Five Forks. General Bartlett's brigade of Griffin's division, in which the 155th was serving, was ordered to advance to connect the cavalry and infantry lines of the 5th Corps. Along in the afternoon, the 155th came across the Confederate cavalry, and part of the regiment was deployed by Major Klein, commanding as skirmishers. 
the enemy's cavalry fell back to the main lines, being closely followed by the 155th Regiment, in front of which the regiment was checked. By this time it was almost dark, and a picket line was formed by the 155th along the ridge. Orderly Sergeant William Justice, Robert, Martin, George West, Chauncey Eckenrode, and the rider, all of Company A, were stationed in position, watching a road from the enemy's works leading down to the valley. Sometime, during the night, without any notice to Sergeant Justice, the other pickets of the regiment were withdrawn, and Sergeant Justice's squad was left alone. When later the moon arose, it was found that all the Union pickets, except the squad in which the rider was, had been withdrawn. Not feeling like facing a large number of the enemy in front, Sergeant Justice gave the order for the squad to fall back, which they proceeded to do. The squad had not gone far when a party of soldiers, evidently not friendly to Yankees, was encountered. This party demanded that the riders' party halt, and that one of the squad be sent in advance to them. The riders' party halted, but refrained from sending out anyone as requested. Finally, after some parley, Eckenrode did advance and was promptly made a prisoner. On discovering that the riders' party were Yankees, they at once opened fire on them. The remaining four of the rider squad ran at a double quick at once to make their escape. In their great hurry, the Company A squad became separated, Martin and West keeping together and going one way, and Sergeant Justice and the rider keeping company. Martin and West struck the right direction for the regiment reaching it the next morning. Sergeant Justice and the rider, being more frustrated, went wrong. The Confederate party followed the retreating picket squad for a time, but were finally distanced. It was learned afterwards from Eckenrode that the party of Confederates were a few guerrillas and not part of the Confederate army. The first person Sergeant Justice and the rider met the next morning, after making their escape, was General A.L. Pearson, whose brigade had command of the pickets and wagon trains. He was pushing forward his part of the 5th Corps on its forced night march to Five Forks. As the rider's party was entirely out of rations and hungry, General Pearson had his cook at once furnish them with a good substantial breakfast of warm coffee and hardtack. Sergeant Justice and the rider arrived just in time to join their company and regiment as it was about to go into action at Five Forks. Eckenrode was held a prisoner until recaptured just before the flag of truce came in at Appomattox, where the regiment was on duty on advanced skirmish line. Eckenrode's reappearance with the company was hailed with joy. Comrades seeing him on that occasion will ever remember the expression of great relief and delight showing in his countenance as he took his place in the company ranks. He was further overjoyed, as were all others present, when a little later the order reached the skirmish line to cease firing, and the knowledge that the war was at last ended was received. The writer is not aware that any others of the squad of five on that eventful picket duty are now surviving. The last service rendered by the writer, and a most gratifying one, was to serve as mounted orderly to General A. L. Pearson, commanding the brigade, the young captain under whom the writer had enlisted in Pittsburgh scarce three years before. The Charge at Five Forks 
by Orderly Sergeant J.A. McDowell, Company F. The important Battle of Five Forks, which resulted in the fall of Richmond and Petersburg, has been so often and so well told that it would be presumption upon the part of the writer to attempt to improve upon or even to equal the many vivid descriptions of that sanguinary action. Having been an active participant in the engagement, however, the writer believes that his peculiar experience therein may prove of interest, not only to those comrades who were with him in that famous charge, but to the general reader, interested in the details and incidents of a great battle. On the evening before the battle, a detail of troops, of which the writer was one, was sent down to the left of the Fifth Corps line to endeavor to effect a junction with Sheridan's cavalry. This detail, encountering a strong force of the enemy, failed to make a connection with the Union cavalry, but held their ground against the enemy until dark, when they sought safety in a hasty retreat to the Union lines. The next morning, the entire Fifth Corps, Major General Warren commanding, moving to the left, made the desired connection with Sheridan's troopers, and preparations were at once commenced to attack the enemy's works. It was well along in the afternoon before General Warren succeeded in getting all his divisions and brigades into position to carry out his plan of attack. Just before the advance began, General Warren rode in front of our line and said, quote, Boys, you know the reputation Sheridan's cavalry has. Now show them how you can fight. Unquote. And we did. The division, brigade, and regimental bugle sounded the charge. The attack, by the 155th, was gallantly made, but unfortunately the regiment struck the enemy's works at a point which was just in the process of being reinforced. Rushing out of the woods and falling rather unexpectedly upon the hostile works, the alignment of the 155th was badly broken, and facing the fire, not only of the enemy defending the works, but also of his reinforcements, the regiment suffered a temporary repulse. It was during this first charge and repulse of the 155th that the rider was taken prisoner and ordered to go to the enemy's rear. This he refused to do, having a vivid horror of a trip to and imprisonment in Andersonville. The 155th, having quickly rallied and returned to the attack, the enemy had little time to give attention to the few prisoners left in their hands from the first charge of the regiment or perhaps they would have shot their rider for his refusal to go to the rear. While the Confederates were giving attention to and preparing for the second attack by the 155th, the rider advanced to a position between the lines of the contending forces, from which, while closely hugging Mother Earth like a land turtle, he could see the movements of both sides. Being a prisoner during the interval between the first and the second charge of the regiment, the writer saw more of this battle than he did of any other battle in which he was engaged during his entire three years of service. While closely hugging the ground and watching eagerly, he could see the pine bushes wilting down from the fire of the 155th like grass before a mowing machine as the regiment swept forward. Soon, the line rushed over the writer and became engaged for a short period in a hand-to-hand -hand combat with the enemy, forcing them to surrender. Being unarmed, the rider, with other rescued prisoners, immediately went to the assistance of the wounded of his company, 
they found our young captain, George P. McClelland, badly wounded, and, putting him upon a blanket, carried him back to a church in the rear. The writer stayed with Captain McClelland all night, ministering to his wants, but was sent for in the morning by Lieutenant William H. King to report to his company as orderly sergeant. Lieutenant King, on the fall of Captain McClelland, took command of the company in the battle, and remained in command for the rest of the campaign, ending in the surrender of Appomattox. No braver or more faithful officer than Doc King, as Lieutenant King was affectionately termed, served in the army. It is due the men of Company F to note that the list of killed and wounded tells the story of their heroism better than any praise the writer can give them. It was a matter of pride to the men of Company F to serve with such leaders as Captain McClelland, Lieutenant W.H. Dr. King, Harry Curry, Corporal Samuel W. Hill, Corporal James J. Carroll, and Privates William P. Ketchum and William B. Birch, all of whom, in this last battle of the Fifth Corps, maintained their deserved reputation as gallant soldiers. The writer has always had the reputation of being stubborn as a mule, and, when ordered by the enemy at Five Forks to go to the rear of their line after being captured, he stubbornly refused to go. It is quite possible it was this distinguishing trait of character that saved him from several days' hard marching and starving within the Confederate lines. The Last Man Killed in the Army of the Potomac by Sergeant John H. Kerr, Company I The surviving members of the 155th Regiment, Pennsylvania Volunteers, feel justly proud of its record, made in its three years' historic campaigns with the Army of the Potomac, and of the twenty-eight battles in which it participated, all luminous with the valor of the brave men, living and dead, who fought under its storm-bleached and bullet-riddled flag. It needs no praise from us. And, as one of the three hundred fighting regiments, we can leave its record as now unalterably fixed in history beyond the power of mortal man either to enhance or dim. But by the fortunes of war, and the circumstance of the position it occupied, we can claim for it the distinctive honor of firing the last shot of the Army of the Potomac from the skirmish line at Appomattox. That shot is historic forevermore. It was the parting salute of war to the coming of the goddess of domestic concord and fraternal union. As the missile speeds on its way of ruin and affright, a white smoke follows after it, parts from its uppermost curve, and melts into the higher air of heaven, like the angel of peace spreading her wings as the harbinger of the better day. THE DEATH OF MONTGOMERY Company I had the distinguished honor of contributing the last man killed in the last engagement of that historic army. William Montgomery, who fell the most advanced post of our line, on the 9th of April, 1865, one hour before the final surrender. Sergeant Major Shore, who shortly afterwards escorted the flag of truce through our lines, related at the time that he saw young Montgomery 
struck by a shell from a rebel battery, just in front of and a little to the right of the skirmish line of the regiment, that seemed to scatter the body of the brave boy into a hundred pieces. It turned out afterwards, however, that what seemed to be fragments of the body were parts of his clothing and accoutrements, and that the shell had mortally wounded him by tearing away a part of his right thigh. He was borne from the field by stretcher-bearers and taken to the field hospital, and later to the general hospital at Farmville, Virginia, where, after intense suffering, he yielded up his gallant spirit on April 28, 1865, offering his life as a peace offering and his blood as a sacrament of reconciliation between the warring sections of a divided land. He belonged to a fighting family. His brother, Standish Montgomery, served in Company I, 139th Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers, and lost a leg at Spotsylvania. His uncle, John Peppard, also served in Company I, 155th Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers, was severely wounded at Hatcher's Run, and falling into the enemy's hands was never heard of afterwards. There is something truly pathetic in the fall of this young patriot, less than seventeen years of age, on the last day of the war. That cruel fate, by the margin of one short hour before the surrender, within which he received his death wound, should deprive him of returning with the victorious legions to home and friends, sadden the hearts of his comrades amid the general rejoicing of the nation's triumph. But while to our short-sighted vision his death seems untimely, we know that no higher honor could have come to him than to have his name and Appomattox wedded forever in a mortal history. That through death he received his coronation. Quote, and that he wears a truer crown than any wreath that men can weave him. Unquote. And that will be the end of our reading for today. We will pick up at Memories of Appomattox by Captain George M. Loughlin, Brevet Major. Next week, and then we'll also, uh, we're pretty close to the end of this book. I think next episode will be the end of everything that involves the conflict and then after that, we are moving post-war, so which is going to be pretty interesting. I hope you guys want to stick around for those episodes as well. There's not quite as many entertaining battle stories, but there's a lot of pages dedicated to memorials and some of the Grand Army of the Republic work that they do afterwards, along with kind of a, just a chapter that's all about what happened to all of the survivors, which is really cool. Some of the things that I won't be reading, though, are lists of names. I'm not going to read uh, the list of names of every single person in the 155th and what happened to them. Instead, I'm just going to link that page when we come across it. Be like, if you want to look at this, you can. But that would be it would be so long because it's like, oh, man, no, not doing any of that. So, uh other than that, that's the end of our episode for today. I thought it was really interesting. I really enjoyed... Now, I it's hard not to. Obviously, the death of Montgomery being 
one of the last men killed. Obviously, it's impossible to know exactly who was, but uh, I know there are a couple others out there that also claim that fame. While that was really sad, the short article written The Charge at Five Forks by Orderly Sergeant McDowell of Company F, because he got captured and then he snuck away and he watched the fight from both sides. That's all anyone wants to do, right? Anyone wants to just be able to watch both sides fight it out. So how interesting that must have been for him. And then to be swept over by his friends and allies who sweep over the Confederate defenses and they recapture him um, while he's hiding in between the lines is is really entertaining. Also gives us a little glimpse into what that combat was like. I mean, obviously you can read as much as you want, but it's something else to have been there. Uh, I think this this is going to be pretty close to what we can get. I see maybe reenactors, I suppose, but they're not actively shooting at each other. And you can tell sometimes that they're just bored, <laughs> just putting in the putting in the time so they can retire. Well, I'm just playing. Um, anyway, with that, I'm going to get on out of here. I have a series of well parts to fix. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, go ahead and slap that like button. Do that upgrade notification. What's, what other weird things can I say? Uh, give me five stars or... Obviously, if you like the podcast, share it with your friends. The biggest, you know, the biggest way that this podcast grows is from word of mouth. So thank you very much. Uh, I'm taking off on out of here. I have some celebrating to do that I need to go grab my, that I need to go grab my lady for. But my friends, thank you for listening to the episode. It is a wild and crazy one, as they always seem to be. Super entertaining at that. All right, friends. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you on the flip side. Have a great one. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. Old John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps, his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah For his soul is marching on John Brown was a hero Undaunted, true, and brave And Kansas knew his valor When he fought her rights to save And now, though the grass grows Green above his grave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah for his soul is marching on He kept
captured Harper's Ferry with us 19 men so few And frightened old Virginie till she trembled through and through They hung him for a traitor, themselves a traitorous crew But a soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah John the Baptist of the Christ we are to see Christ who of the bondmen shall the liberator be And soon throughout the sunny south the slaves shall all be free For a soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah That he heralded, he looked from heaven to view On the army of the Union With its flag red, white, and blue And heaven shall sing with anthems Or the deed they mean to do For his soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Then strike while strike ye may The death blow of oppression In a better time and way The dawn of old John Brown Has brightened in the day And his soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Soul is marching